Hi, this is Professor Jim Paisley. Are you tired of the five-minute news clips presented every night by the talking heads on the national news? Would you like to know what is really going on? I have taught American and European history for the past 27 years. I find it fascinating how history truly does repeat itself. When we watch the evening news, no one seems to know anything about how current events are all tied to the past. Critical race theory, crime in our cities, federal versus state powers, the Arab-Israeli conflict? How about international relations with Russia, China, and Europe? On my shows, I give a historical perspective to what is currently happening in our world. Join me weekly to find the true history behind what is happening today. recently talked about the role of government and lo and behold what happens government seems to come and expand its ever increasing authority and so now we have to deal with a whole new issue president biden has set up what he calls a disinformation board headed up by a woke so-called expert who's against free speech and tried to pour cold water on the whole Hunter laptop scandal. Now, I found a great article by Caitlin Corral. She's the U.S. political reporter for the Daily Mail. So you can go to dailymail.com and find this article. Now, she explains that Nina Jankowitz will head the new Department of Homeland Security Disinformation Governance Board as executive director. Isn't that a scary thought? Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas did not disclose any powers that would be granted to this dystopian-sounding board while addressing lawmakers just this past week. He explained that the board would work to tackle disinformation ahead of the November midterms, particularly in Hispanic communities. But Mayorkas did say that the new board would come under the Biden-era Center for Prevention Programs and Partnerships, something they called CP3, meaning it would have no powers to crack down on disinformation and will instead try to combat it by throwing money at it when it sees problems. Oh, great. So now the government's going to throw money at another problem that I wasn't even aware that we had. Now, this new program provides communities with resources and tools to help prevent individuals from radicalizing to violence. Last year, the CP3 program, Center for Prevention Programs and Partnership, awarded about $20 million in grants through its Targeted Violence and Terrorism Prevention Grant Program. Now, it's unclear how much cash will be spent on this disinformation board. And we can see how well that Targeted Violence and Terrorism Prevention thing worked in places like Seattle, Washington, in 
Chicago just last summer. Now, Mayorkas noted that the focus of the new board would be to stop the spread of information in minority communities, including election misinformation ahead of the 2022 midterms. He added that it would focus on the latest trend of misinformation allegedly targeting Spanish-speaking voters. No further details on the exact misinformation being deployed against these communities was shared. So obviously there's a problem, but we really don't know what it is. Now, Jankowitz, who revealed that she was the head of the department following Mayorkas' meeting with lawmakers, tweeted, Cat's out of the bag. Here's what I've been up to the past two months and why I've been a bit quiet on here. Now, Senator Josh Hawley pointed out that Jankowitz told NPR last week that she shudders to think about more free speech on social media platforms after Elon Musk made a bid for Twitter. She added that a huge focus on our work, and indeed one of the key reasons the board was established, is to maintain the department's commitment to protecting free speech, privacy, civil rights, and civil liberties. Now, I find that fascinating. So they're the ones that are going to decide what constitutes free speech and what doesn't. Now, as a Russia disinformation expert, she previously called the laptop of President Joe Biden's son, Hunter, a Trump campaign product. Isn't that disinformation? So this is causing questions over Jankowitz's ability to accurately judge disinformation now that several sources have come out confirming the validity of Hunter's laptop. Now, Jankowitz also suggested last week that she opposes the First Amendment because she thinks it's a, it is bad for marginalized communities and called Elon Musk a free speech absolutist because he wants to make Twitter more open to all voices. What? Free speech? Absolutist because he wants to make Twitter more open to all voices? Isn't that what free speech is about? Now, the Department of Homeland Security did not immediately respond to the request of the Daily Mail asking more about this whole program to get more information on exactly what they were saying. Now, Jankowitz is a fellow at the Wilson Center, where she studies the intersection of democracy and technology in Central and Eastern Europe. She is also the author of How to Lose the Information War, Russia, Fake News, and the Future of Conflict. Now, when stories about Hunter Biden's laptop started emerging, several outlets, social media sites, and left-leaning disinformation experts claimed that it was just misinformation coming from Trump and others on the right. In an October 2020 report, Jankowitz shared her skepticism of the contents of the laptop and the claims that it belonged to Hunter. She said we should view it as a Trump campaign product, she told the New York Daily News at the time. Again, isn't that disinformation? Now, Twitter repeatedly took down the Hunter Biden laptop story and prevented it from being spread on the platform. Billionaire Elon Musk, who just purchased Twitter, said that his aim is to make the social media platform a more open digital town square. Freedom of speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy, 
and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated, Musk wrote in a statement upon the purchase approval. Now, Jankowitz spoke with NPR last week and questioned Musk's purchase of the platform and stated, I shudder to think about if free speech absolutists were taking over more platforms, what that would look like for the marginalized communities. She said these groups are already, already shouldering disproportionate amounts of this abuse and said free speech and a lack of censoring on social media would make it worse. What in the world is she saying here? So folks, is the Disinformation Governance Board a good idea? I think regulators should think carefully about the fallout from well-intentioned new rules and avoid the mistakes of the past. So here's a little history for you. Censorship was rampant throughout Nazi Germany. Censorship ensured that Germans could only see what the Nazi hierarchy wanted people to see, hear what they wanted them to hear, and read only what the Nazis deemed acceptable. The Nazi police dealt with anyone who went outside of these boundaries. Censorship dominated the lives of the ordinary citizen in Nazi Germany. The prime mover in censorship was the Minister of Propaganda, Joseph Goebbels. It was his responsibility to see that the German people were fed with material acceptable to the Nazi state. Newspapers, radio, and all forms of media were put under the control of the Nazis. Even the film and music industries were controlled by the Nazis. Music by Gustav Mahler and Felix Mendelssohn was banned since they were both Jews. Jazz was also banned. Even telling jokes about Hitler became a serious offense, one that could send you to the concentration camps and potentially death. How do you think Saturday Night Live would do it nowadays under that kind of system? Censorship was enforced by a number of methods. First, the secret police, or the local police, ensured that the rules were kept to. Secondly, anyone who wanted to go outside of the desired party norm faced the most serious of consequences. And third, probably the scariest thing of all, people in general were expected to report anything unacceptable to their local party chief. Why would you do that? Well, those who knew something but did not report it were deemed as guilty as those who went against the system. This was the key to enforcement. Censorship ensured that the Nazis had the German public in their grip as they bombarded them on a daily basis on how their lives had been improved from the day Hitler became Germany's leader. Let me give you a quote from Adolf Hitler. The chief function of propaganda is to convince the masses whose slowness of understanding needs to be given time in, in order that they may absorb information, and only constant repetition will finally succeed in imprinting an idea on their mind. The slogan must be, of course, illustrated in many ways and from several angles, but in the end one must always return to the assertion of the same formula. One will be rewarded by the surprising and almost incredible results that such a personal policy secures. Again, that was written by Adolf Hitler in Mein Kampf. 
Here's another one. This one from Joseph Goebbels, the leader of the propaganda. He said, our way of taking power and using it would have been inconceivable without the radio and the airplane. Now, such statements are often cited. The former head of Disney, Bob Iger, recently said that Adolf Hitler would have loved social media. Goebbels was not saying that the Nazis had used both new technologies, the airplane and the radio, to come to power. Rather, the airplane helped the Nazis take power, and radio helped keep it. The history of radio in particular, how it was regulated in interwar Germany, is more relevant than ever. So when we have talk about this disinformation board, we have something to look back on. Now, five years ago, the question was whether or not we ourselves would regulate social media. Now the questions are, how and when will we regulate them? Now, as politicians and regulators in places as different as Berlin, Singapore, and Washington, and even Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg consider how best to do so, we should think carefully about the fallout from well-intentioned new rules and avoid the mistakes of the past. Now again, I'm just sharing with you what has happened in the past and hoping that we aren't making the same mistake. Now think about this. Radio only became central to Nazi Germany's aims after Hitler was elected chancellor in January of 1933. But Joseph Goebbels, his propaganda minister, quickly exercised power over the medium because the state already controlled its infrastructure and content. State control over radio had been intended to defend democracy. It unintentionally laid the groundwork for the Nazi propaganda machine. Radio emerged as a new technology in the early 1920s, and the bureaucrat tasked with developing regulations for it in the Weimar Republic, Hans Brito, initially had high hopes. He thought that radio could broadcast education and entertainment to bring the German population together after the divisive loss of World War I, and he believed that radio should not broadcast political content, fearing it might exacerbate an already hostile environment. Now, initially, Brito allowed private companies to broadcast, and only from the mid-1920s on did stations start to air some news. Now, this seemed dangerous to Brito and other officials who worried that news would stoke uprisings or anti-democratic sentiment. Now, Weimar bureaucrats began exerting ever greater state supervision over radio content to try to depoliticize it. As the Weimar Republic of Germany became more and more politically unstable, Bredow and others pushed through reforms in 1926 and in 1932 that mandated direct state supervision of radio content. He believed that increasing state direction would prevent Weimar democracy from falling. So he said that they needed to regulate this to keep people from using the radio to make the, that would destabilize the government. So his intentions were good, okay? But what happened was, is sure enough, that works fine if you have a government 
who's trying to stabilize things. But what happens when a new government comes in? In this case, Adolf Hitler. Now, this effort played right into the Nazis' hands and meant that the Nazis could seize immediate control over radio content when they came to power. Friedau himself was imprisoned for trying to stand up for democratic values on the radio. After World War II, he actually helped reestablish radio in democratic West Germany. There's now an, even a, a statue of him at the Media Institute in Hamburg, which was named after him. Now, the Nazi example, though extreme, reminds us that well-intentioned laws can have tragic, unintended consequences. We need to be wary of the long-term consequences of state control over content, such as this disinformation board. Now, the actual history of Nazi Germany can help us think more critically about current policy suggestions and move beyond all this mudslinging comparisons with the fascist past. Now, if that wasn't enough for you, Let's turn to another great example of government-controlled media, none other than the Soviet Union. Now, the Bolsheviks seized power in Russia in 1917 while championing freedom, yet one of their first decisions was to limit free speech through harsh censorship. In early November 1917, the Soviet government signed the Decree on Press, which prohibited publishing any bourgeois, affluent middle class, articles criticizing the Bolsheviks' authority. Okay? So if anybody comes out and talks bad about the government, oh, there's going to be all kinds of different sanctions and things come out against you. Now, as the years passed, political censorship grew even stronger, reaching its peak under Joseph Stalin's reign. After his death, the state relaxed its stance, but censorship remained all the way until Mikhail Gorbachev declared glasnost, openness, in the late 1980s. Now, Lenin and Stalin claimed Soviet censorship had a different character than the one existing in places like Nazi Germany, and that their censorship aimed only at protecting the interests of the working class. Now, this is a bold statement, especially given the fact that the Soviet elite employed censorship for its own bloody gain, most notably during Stalin's Great Purge. The physical eradication of Stalin's political opponents was followed by their obliteration from all forms of pictorial existence as well. This uh, was written by British historian David King, who has talked about this in his book, Commissar Vanishes. They actually had people that retouched photographs in their history books, and erased traces of fallen leaders from all photographs and images. You can go back and see these things where none other than Leon Trotsky, who came to power with Stalin and Lenin, now all of a sudden, where he was in pictures in the past, is gone. He just vanished. Now, in 1921, the Soviet government created the Glavlet, the General, General Directorate for the Protection of State Secrets in the Press, which for decades remained the main instrument for controlling literature. Glavlet's censors decided if a book was published in the USSR 
or if it was banned. As a result, Soviet citizens could not read many books, some of which are now regarded as classics, including Boris Pasternak's Dr. Zhivago, not to mention most of the works by Alexander Solzhenitsyn that criticized the Soviet regime. The circulation of books written by immigrant writers who had fled Soviet Russia were, of course, prohibited. Nevertheless, the Soviet government couldn't completely eradicate literature it deemed dangerous. Through the ages, people opposing censorship have circulated handmade copies of banned literature. In the Soviet Union, this was called Samizdat, self-published, and scores of illegal books were enjoyed by readers as a result. Now, Nikita Khrushchev, the leader of the USSR from 1953 to 1964, was more liberal than Stalin, whose repression policies he condemned in a secret speech in 1956. Now, according to the Russian historian Leonid Katsva, Khrushchev even thought of abolishing ideological censorship in art, but later changed his mind. Under the rule of Leonard Brezhnev, 1964-1982, the state continued to oppress artists working outside the realm of social realism. For example, in 1974, the government demolished an unofficial avant-garde exhibition in the suburbs of Moscow using bulldozers and water cannons. The event became known as the Bulldozer Exhibition. Throughout the Cold War, both the West and the USSR were trying to influence each other's population by providing alternative points of view. In 1946, the BBC uh, started broadcasting radio services for Soviet citizens. Voice of America, Radio Liberty, and Deutsche Welle all followed suit in a couple of years. Now, not surprisingly, the Kremlin was not happy with Western media trying to meddle with Soviet citizens, so it started blocking radio frequencies used by foreign stations. Now, according to Romantis Plikas, a radio journalist from Lithuania, the USSR possessed the most powerful and wide-scale anti-radio system in the world. But even that system had cracks. Those who wanted to continue tuning in to the foreign voices and alternative opinions, along with jazz and rock music, found a way. Finally, in 1988, Mikhail Gorbachev officially stopped blocking Western radio stations. So folks, don't believe that it can't happen here. Let's go back to our first question. Now that you've had a little history, is the Disinformation Governance Board a good idea? Now, I know what you, a lot of you are thinking. Like I say, it'll never happen here. Well, you're dead wrong. Let me give you a quote. Old, querulous, bald, blind, crippled, toothless Adams, one supporter of Challenger, Thomas Jefferson, called the incumbent president. He called the president old, querulous, bald, blind, crippled, toothless Adams. But Adams got the last laugh signing a bill in 1798 that made it illegal to criticize a government official without backing up one's criticisms in court. Twenty-five people were arrested under the law, though Jefferson pardoned its victims after he defeated Adams in an 1800 election. How about this one? 
the body novel Fanny Hill, written in 1748 by John Cleland, as an exercise in what he imagined a prostitute's memoirs might sound like, was no doubt familiar to the Founding Fathers. We know that Benjamin Franklin, who himself wrote some fairly risque material, had a copy of the book. Now, this book holds the record for being banned longer than any other literary work in the United States. Fanny Hill, written in 1748. It was banned from 1748 all the way through until 1966. Now, basically what happened is they prohibited it from even being published in 1821. And the Supreme Court finally overturned the ban in Memoirs versus Massachusetts in 1966. Of course, once it was legal, it lost most of its appeal. By 1966 standards, nothing written in 1748 was liable to shock anybody. But think about that. We ourselves banned a book from, well, basically 1748 until 1966. And finally, here's one more great example. During the Civil War, the battle for public opinion was almost as important as the battles fought with bullets and bayonets. President Abraham Lincoln was a master tactician when it came to using public opinion as both a political weapon as well as a military aid. And he used the press not only to get his message out in an era before electronic mass communication, but also to prevent his opponents from having similar access to the hearts and minds of the people. He did this through the use of military censorship, control of the post office and telegraphs, and through the use of patronage, basically giving certain papers exclusive rights and banning others. At that time, New York City was the media capital of the Western world. The big three papers in New York City were the Tribune, the Herald, and the Times. There were also many other influential newspapers in other parts of the country, including Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and in Lincoln's home state of Illinois, where Lincoln purchased a newspaper printed in German to bolster his electoral chances in that state. Lincoln used censorship of those journalists and newspapers whose views, in his opinion, did not fit with the administration or its prosecution of the war justifying the practice as being one which saved lives by shortening the war. Many newspapers that were critical of the Union were censored or shut down altogether. Some editors were jailed for their anti-administration views. Freedom of the press was a casualty of the war, and the real debate is whether or not this was justified under the circumstances of the time. Lincoln also used the press as a means of getting his message to the people in an era before the ability to speak directly to the masses existed. For example, when emancipation became an issue, Lincoln wrote his famous response to Horace Greeley's Prayer of Twenty Millions editorial, which accused Lincoln of using his abolitionist leanings as the reason for the death of so many young men in the war. In response, Lincoln famously wrote, If I could save the Union without freeing a slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. Boy, there's a politician for you. 
Now, in mid-August 1861, four newspapers in New York City, the New York Daily News, the Journal of Commerce, Daybook, and Freeman's Journal, were all given indictments by a grand jury of the United States Circuit Court for frequently encouraging the rebels by expressions of sympathy and agreement. A series of federal prosecution of newspaper throughout the northern states followed, and the target was any newspaper that printed expressions of sympathy for Southern causes or criticisms of the Lincoln administration. Now, Lincoln was able to affect control of press censorship because in those days, stories were filed by telegraph, and Lincoln controlled the telegraph. Censorship of news dispatches filed in Washington began in April of 1861, at a time when the government assumed control of the telegraph wires to and from the city. This type of censorship became necessary because northern papers quickly found their hands into the hands of Confederate generals. When Missouri radicals complained about General John Schofield muzzling the press in September of 1863 here in Missouri, Lincoln responded, I think when an office in any department finds that a newspaper is pursuing a course calculated to embarrass his operations and stir up sedition and tumult, he has the right to lay hands upon it and suppress it. Drastic measures were sometimes taken where it was seen necessary for military purposes. There were repeated civil and military actions to shut down newspapers for supposedly seditious behavior. This was common early in the war in the border states of Maryland and Missouri. So folks, don't believe that it can't happen here. Let's go back to our first question. Now that you've heard my opinion on it, is the Disinformation Governance Board really a good idea? That's all I have for today, folks. I'm Professor Jim Paisley. If you would like to help me continue these shows... It's as simple as clicking the support link where you access this podcast. Thanks, and be sure to remember your history.